first off, Lee, did I miss any blanks? You don't think so? Okay. Any questions about my very brief introduction and overview of Ephesians? Anybody? Ephesians. <laughs> Wanda Cowan. Well, you had five ways to walk, yes. and I got four of them. Worthy, oh. in love, as children of light, as wise and not unwise. What did I miss? They're, they're all listed right there, but we'll go right through them. So four, one, walk worthy. Mm-hmm. 17, uh, no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Okay. Five one, five two. I mean, walk in love. Five eight, walk as children of light, and fifteen, walk not as unwise but as wise. Um, and again, I think those are just helpful handholds of knowing around the letter. Mike, Mike, just by giving a loose framework is just so that as you're reading, okay, we're in the section of different walks, um, or we're in the section of the household code, or the armor of God, or uh, the, the contrast in chapter 2 between your former position and your new position. The two big key phrases in chapter 2 are, but God, in verse 4, and verse 13, but now. And that's the hinge of the contrast. Here's the way you formerly were, but God. Here's the way you formerly were, but now. And that's the hinge the two contrasts turn on of your new position individually in the first one and then corporately in the second one. And so just... Trying to give some loose framework to see sort of Paul's overarching thought. The other value of reading a whole letter is Paul wrote a whole letter. And we can, we can sometimes be in danger in our Bible study of missing the forest for the trees. You know, we take a verse, we put it on a plaque, knit it onto a, you know, a blanket or crochet it on the wall or get a bumper sticker. And we can start treating the Bible like a string of pearls. And, oh, I love that verse. I love that verse. So we think of Ephesians as just like Paul stringing together a couple hundred really great pearls. Some not as great as the others, and some really shiny. Paul wrote a letter, um, and, and there's a cohesiveness to it and, and a mind to it that, that links things together. He sets up those walks that he starts chapter 4 with right there in chapter 2. You used to walk this way, but now God has done this work in you, and you have to walk a different way. And he sets that up in chapter 2 so that he can... As soon as he hits practical application, he starts picking it up with walk a certain way or don't walk this way. He's laid that foundation skillfully in chapter 2. Um, and you can see those types of things when you read a whole book. It's, it's not, it's, yeah. Those, sorry, I'm just going off, Wanda. Yes, Lois. I appreciated, this isn't a question, but I appreciated the fact that you pointed out that this is just a general letter that applies to us just like it did the Ephesians. When you read, when we read through the whole book then, it was like, just like he was talking to me. And it was really, I appreciated that. Well, that, that was the thing, like I said, that jumped out at me the most, is there's so little in this letter that I have to... All of scriptures for us, but some of it comes through like points of separation. You know, like we don't have iodia and sanctity in our body. So when Paul urges them to get along, we can say, what can we learn from this? We can watch from the sidelines as he talks to them, and God has truth for us there in Philippians. But there's no, okay, better, who's got Yodia's phone number? We've got to tell her. There's none of that. There's virtually none of that type of secondary removal here. 
Um, that greeting at the end of Tychicus delivering a letter, okay, Tychicus isn't here delivering a letter. But it, we really can almost, I think better than just about any other letter in the Bible, sit where they sat and receive it as they received it. Mike Doty was telling me he, that clicked with him so much, he closed his Bible because, of course, in the first century, they'd hear it orally. And I was like, huh, you know. Um, no, actually, here's a challenge for you. How many verses in the Bible can you think of that tell you to read the Bible? Explicitly. It's always hear or speak or dwell upon. The only passage I'm aware of that tells us to read the Bible is Paul's instruction to Timothy to give much attention to the public reading of Scripture. Otherwise, it's hiding it in your heart or this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth or hear my son, your father's instruction. Um, because, of course, very few people had their own copies of the Torah or the Tanakh or the scrolls or whatever. That's really something that came along since Gutenberg. And so it's great that we have our own copies of the Bible. But originally, and for most of church history and, and the history of Israel before that, the people of God encountered God's word hearing it, read. Um, that's what Jesus did when he goes to the synagogue. He opens the scroll and he reads it. And so I think it's great to gather corporately and you know, periodically read the Bible. Um, that's that's fantastic. I mean, I used to do that as a new believer I remember, I mean, I'd be so excited. We get together with some friends. What do you want to do? Let's read Hebrews. We sit in a circle and do a chapter at a time and go around. And, uh, you know, the, the tyranny, the urgent comes up. And I do that far less. But I've been trying to read, actually, Ephesians every day. I'm getting ready for this. Um, and it's, it's 15 to 20 minutes, depending on how slow you go. And, you know, I'd have no problem watching my favorite TV show for half an hour every day. Yeah, that'd be not a problem in the least. Uh, so anyway, I, I'd encourage you guys to read it more. Thank, thank you. I, it's the same clicking for me. Like this really, I could just take straight to us without any, well, not really, but we, it's straight to us. Uh, other thoughts, questions, or complaints? Dave Lampold reminded me that that meant I had 17 less minutes to prepare for my message, but, um, but not really, because I had to practice reading it. I actually came in here to make sure the lighting was, because my, I'm getting older, my eyesight's not what it used to be. So I was actually worried, like, am I going to have to print this off large? So I can't. No, when Mandy came in on Friday, I was in here reading this thing to nobody. So um, it, 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 there's its own sort of work in just making sure you don't bungle all the names up and, you know. Anyway, questions. Oh, in the back, Don. Oh, he's got the mic, sir. He's got the mic. Um, I just wanted a second, uh, thanking you the, the, for reading that out loud, uh, just help us remember how powerful God's Word is, uh, especially if you hear it read aloud with emotion, just uh, it kind of speaks to the heart. And the second thing is, uh, I kind of came to Reformed theology late in life, the doctrines of grace, mm. and one, one main thing that I got out of that is how important the gospel is. To a believer, and so when you uh, uh, split up Ephesians into um, imperatives and indicatives, uh, another way I've heard it said is either it promises and demands or law and gospel. And a lot of Paul's letters, well, a lot of the Bible, but it's it seems like he, he talks about the gospel first, what we are in Christ, uh-huh. the promises we have, and then he gets into what that means yeah. as a, a Christian. So. Yeah. Thankful for that. that. No, that's that's a pretty common format for Paul. Romans, the first eight chapters are largely indicatives or doctrine or gospel teaching. And then 
actually even all the way through 11. 9 through 11 is kind of a side discussion on Israel. And then 12 begins, therefore, um, and it starts submitting your body's living sacrifice. And the therefore is because of everything that came before, the previous 12 chapters, because of all of this, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Present your bodies, your members of a living sacrifice. Uh, yeah. So it doesn't start, the, the yeah, the, the Christian life isn't do these things. It's believe these things. And then in believing them, now go do these things. And that order is critical. Critical. Other, other. Got half an hour to go here, folks. I, mean, I got some rabbit trails we can go down. I got some things prepared, but oh, I got Jamie's one. back. Um, can you go into a little bit more detail? Your first point about authorship. Yeah. Um, what were the arguments from 150 years ago where this wasn't a Pauline letter? Um, so the arguments for that case. Sure. Um, they're they're terrible. Uh, well, okay, so there's, let me, let me give you, a, let me, let's do a brief discussion of textual criticism, and I do mean brief. So there are two schools of thought, two sciences, if you will, called textual criticism. One is valid and good and necessary, and I think the other one tends to be from the pit of hell, tends to be. Um, one asks the question, what is the text? What did Paul write? Totally valid, necessary text, test. Um, so in that, guys like Dan Wallace and other people are going to gather and find and study and photograph all of the oldest Greek uh, papyri, majuscule and minuscule texts, and they're going to combine them together and, and compare and figure out where they all say the same thing. And, and if some of them differ here or there, try to, try to resolve what the text is. If you've ever read a footnote in your Bible that says something like some manuscripts say or early manuscripts say, they're indicating a significant textual variant I even mentioned that this morning. There's a, there's some, there's a couple, two or three really, really old ones that don't have an emphasis. They just have nothing. That's where the thought that those copies might have been either. The question is, are those copies original or not? But they're clearly designed as encyclicals. Fill in the blank for the Christians at whatever. And I tend to think those copies probably were altered to become encyclicals rather than being original. But that discussion, did Paul actually write in Ephesus? Totally valid, totally appropriate discussion. We're trying to figure out what is the text. What did Paul write? That's lower criticism. Higher criticism wants to or attempts to get behind that and to, well, usually there's presuppositions that it's not Paul as author to begin with. How did the Christian community adopt and, and, and uh, develop this text over the years how did the Pauline community, how did, um, and they'll start going back in redaction criticism, source criticism, and what they're assuming is this document evolved, and its original state looked very, very different from its latter state, and they're trying to track that evolution. Um, in the gospel studies, they're constantly running around searching for Q, because um, the German name for author begins with a Q. Anyone know what that is? The German name for author that begins with a Q? What? There you go. Q. The Q document, they're assuming, there's this assumption, there's not a single copy or reference to the Q document anywhere in the early, early church. But the assumption is, and it's usually an anti-supernatural assumption, that because, get this, because Matthew, Mark, and Luke have so much commonality, they must 
all have been copying from a common source document, the Q document. Because there, there could be no other explanation for why three eyewitnesses might have similar accounts, right? But if you've already, ex- but most of these people also assume the Gospels were written in the fourth century in Egypt. So if you're assuming people 400 years after the fact are writing this in another continent, well, then, yeah, you probably are going to need a pretty, um, pretty cohesive source document for them to all line up. If, however, they're eyewitnesses, then their explanation for why their accounts line up as well as they do are, are better substantiated. So it's usually those schools of thought. This was big in the, uh, in the early 20th century, turn of the 20th century, 1900s. Uh, a lot of it's a bunch of um, dead Germans now, German schools, higher criticism, neo-orthodoxy, some of that stuff. And basically, there's all sorts of anti-supernatural assumptions going into it that, have, that of course, Paul didn't write this. One of the things, actually, that's been really helpful, one of the side benefits of the advance of Islam in the last 100 years or so is that as Islam spread to regions that were predominantly before Catholic, a lot of old monasteries and monks have fled, bringing with them really, really old texts. We've actually discovered and come across hundreds more really old Greek texts and manuscripts in the last 100, 150 years than we ever had before. The, the pool of available texts is much richer and deeper. We've got about 5,000 um, partial and full copies of the New Testament in Greek, plus about another 20,000 if you encounter, if you count the earliest translations into like Syriac and Coptic and, and things like that. Um, and certainly when the King James translators were working, they didn't have remotely anything near that amount. A lot of that type of theory that this was written in the fourth century got thrown out the window as we discover earlier copies. For instance, we got a fragment of John's gospel that uh, comes from about 125 AD. It's papyri 52. It's about the size of a postage stamp. But there it is. Something that is word for word what we've got in that postage stamp side. And it's double-sided, and so they can figure out, they know how big the original page was. So they can actually extrapolate a lot from that. There's clearly something there. I, I read to you guys this morning um, from, this is a really interesting book, The Apostolic Fathers, Greek Texts and English Translations. What this book represents is everything we've discovered that the early church wrote in the first 100, 125 years. So if Polycarp is quoting Ephesians around 120 AD, what does that tell you? Ephesians was written before 120 AD. And it's things like this that help destroy some of that stuff. Um, you, you really, in order to doubt Pauline authorship, you've got to believe a bunch of other things. It was written later, it's evolved in its current form, um, all those types of things that we would reject, and I think modern archaeology and historiography also demonstrate are flawed. Within any sort of Christian framework, it hasn't really been debated. Uh, the church has pretty uniformly accepted Ephesians as Pauline and as the word of God from day one. Um, and, the, and the point I was trying to make about Polycarp is simply, frequently, if I talk to Roman Catholics, the, the, the charge they'll make to me is, basically, you need Roman Catholicism to have a Bible, because how would you know what the books of the Bible are without our Roman Catholic um, you know, council to tell you? Because certainly coming out of the Council of Constantinople comes the list of 66 books. Um, and Christians will hear that. Oh, wow. And there's, you can respond to that twofold. One, 
What is called Roman Catholicism today and what existed in the fourth century are very different beasts. I think we'd all probably be much more comfortable with Roman Catholicism in the fourth century. Although, of course, there is no Roman Catholicism in the fourth century because the ascendancy of the Bishop of Rome doesn't take place till the fifth century. Um, but that aside, Catholicism in the fourth century would have been something I think we'd be much more comfortable with and much more at peace with and, and not the mass isn't in there. Purgatory is not in there yet. So the Roman Catholicism at that time was largely sound. But second, and more importantly, nobody in, at that council thought they were making a list that they were authorizing books. They rather, for the first time in church history, because prior to Constantine, I'm sorry, I'm sorry to go off. You asked a historical question and all. You're getting a long answer. Okay, 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 okay. Um, so basic, basic overview, right? So Christianity is outlawed and illegal. And during about 10 Roman emperors, to varying degrees in various locations, the church is being persecuted, right? And then Constantine, Roman emperor, uh, converts to Christianity. Converts. There's a lot of debate over whether that's a political move. He waits to be baptized till his deathbed. But whatever, Constantine makes Christianity the law of the land. It's legal. And so for the first time now, the Christians can come out of the crypts, can come out of the hiding, and meet publicly. And that's why they have this big ecumenical council, because you know different groups have got different things they're calling scripture. And so there might be a local house church that's just got the Gospel of John and Ephesians. You know, and it, because there isn't this ability to be above ground and be obvious. So they get together, and they spend, how long? I think that council took like three years, I want to say. But... Um, and they come out with a list of agreed upon, this is the word of God. It's no one at that time thought they were authorizing anything. They are recognizing scripture. And that's a key distinction. We, we don't give scripture its authority. We recognize its authority. And for instance, the church historian Eusebius from the third century has a list of the same 66 books. Um, in other words, there's plenty of evidence that the church prior to Constantine knew what the scripture was. Um, this is just the first time the whole church agrees upon and knows what the scripture is. Anyway, um, that's, that's my medium-sized answer, Jamie. Sorry. <laughs> if this stuff bores you, all I'll say is I, I only want to belabor the point because you you'll hear people, especially some academics, talk very confidently about how ridiculous... Oftentimes, they'll make much more, um, much more arrogant and unfounded claims than even conservative, honest scholars will make. I mean, even unbelieving scholars. In other words, most, most people who know what they're talking about recognize how ridiculously um, rich the pool of New Testament texts is and how, therefore, ridiculously accurate we're able to reconstruct the Greek New Testament, even from unbelievers who know what they're talking about. Um, but what you'll get is people like Bart Ehrman or you'll get a, uh, you know, um, Richard Dawkins or somebody and they'll, they'll say things and, oh, wow. And I'm just saying, even if you don't want to do the research, it's there to be done and it's, there are people who've done it and there is every reason to believe just from a historical and scientific aspect that we have an incredibly accurate and authoritative and what we have now and what was written then are incredibly close, if not identical, um, that that's there's every reason to think that that isn't something we just take on blind faith, but okay. Other questions, Bridget. Okay.
So after the church came out of hiding, at what point did they start transition to meeting in church buildings rather than house churches? Almost immediately. Once, so what happens is you get, you get Christendom. And so, and by Christendom, I'm referring to the union of the church and state. You, you get theocratic government. So all of a sudden, you go from Christianity being outlawed to Christianity is the Roman emperor's religion. And guess what? Everybody who wants to has political aspirations becomes a Christian. So sure, you've got real sheep there, but you also have plenty of unbelievers because now there's a good motive to pretend to be a Christian. And all of a sudden, towns want to honor Christianity. Cathedrals get bit written, bit, get built. And very quickly, you transition to a, a with pomp and splendor church that's flashy and showy and has large buildings. And into the medieval ages, we get these massive cathedrals. Also because massive political power becomes connected to the bishoprics, to the bishops. Um, Massive political power. And so wherever you've got that type of union, you're going to get all those other things with it. So the movement from house churches in hiding to big resplendent buildings is a fast movement. In fact, there's a counter-reactionary movement. That's, in fact, where the monastic movement began because a bunch of Christians... If you're interested in any of this, there's a if you want a, a book that's... Detailed enough to be useful, but not eight volumes. Um, my men's group went through. Usto Gonzalez has a two-volume set, The History of Christianity, part one and part two. Very accessible. The thing that's great about it is each chapter is like eight to ten pages long. He'll deal with one event or one thing. So you can sit down and read an eight-page, ten-page thing and work your way through. But he, he chronicles this. And it's on Audible. Eh? Um, what? And it's in the library. There you go. Um, the story of Christianity by Usto Gonzalez, but he chronicles how, in reaction to now this public, pompous Christianity, the monastic movement began. A bunch of Christians went and lived out in the desert to get away from what they viewed as the carnality and the corruption. Of, that's the origin of the monastic movement, was a reaction to Christendom. And of course, the monastic movement eventually doesn't go anywhere terribly useful or good either. But that's it starting. A lot of these things, as you learn this, you become sympathetic for how things started. You're like, okay, I can see why people would think that and why they do that. That's not necessarily the best solution because Jesus, of course, says to be in the world but not of it. And they're like, we'll just get out of the world. We'll go live in the desert. Well, you know, I, I sympathize with why you wanted to do that. Don't think that was the right call, but okay. Um, but yeah. Were you going anywhere further that, Bridget, or is that, that's pretty much it? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I, I really would recommend, if, you, if you're able to read it, you'd be, you would benefit. It'll help give you some understanding of the last 2,000 years, um, especially just, it's helpful as a preventative to see some of the errors and some of the traps and some of the mistakes the church has made in the last 2,000 years. Because in general, there's nothing new under the sun. And the newest modern heresies are simply old heresies dressed up again with fresh clothes. I mean, so you start learning some church history and you're like, oh, yeah, I recognize that. Oh, okay. And it, it becomes helpful in that sense. You don't need to do it. If you have to choose between reading your Bible and reading church history, read your Bible. But if you'd like to read your Bible and some church history, it's helpful. It's helpful. Okay. Anybody? Oh, Zach. Sorry, again, not a question, but um, oh. kind of follow-up comment to you earlier talking about all the history stuff and yeah. I guess Jamie's question about, like, you know, what are the reasons for mm. um, 
like not pulling author pulling authorship and stuff like that. And you're saying like why it's important to kind of know about that or think about that because even though like you said there are really good archaeological and historical um, facts now to show why it is um, written by Paul and lots of other you know questions that people have about the Bible the accuracy those things are still widely taught in um, those kind of things saying that Paul didn't write are still widely taught in yeah. college religion classes yeah so it's like if you have kids or grandkids who are going to college and if they take a religion class they will hear about Q and mm-hmm. all the other kind of crazy theories yeah. and usually it's taught from a perspective of we just want to know all of the things that people thought and you know what they wrote about it but usually if it's a liberal professor they don't like the answer that God inspired people to write it so they're going to kind of yeah. put their opinion as they like the idea of Q. They like the idea of just a community wrote this, and we can kind of take what we want. So, oh yeah, it's stuff that's still being widely taught. And if you're encountering it for the first time, it's like, oh man, what is you know maybe that is right. And yeah, so it's important to know about it. And that no, thank you. And that's that's part of what I'm trying to do here. For some people, they may never encounter people arguing about Q and source criticism. In which case, bear with me for three minutes. But for some of you who will, at the very least, there. Were, what I would hate to think is that a Christian shows up to college, a kid shows up to college, they hear this stuff, and they actually think no one has any... Because the professors will present it so confidently, and with such, like, everyone knows this. No no serious academics think Paul wrote a few... You know, and the kid will just be blown out of the water with, what? And, like, if that's not where you're at, that's cool. There are some answers to that. I just want to encourage people that if there are, come talk to me, or I can point you some books... But that, I'm amazed at the hubris of um, some professors and the, the types of gross overstatements they'll make. Uh, amazed at it. You're like, what are you talking about? And um, so, yeah, thank you. Yeah, yes, we, we both, yeah, we've talked to at least one or two professors like that, haven't we? Yeah. Okay. Other questions? View of Ephesians. Okay. Let's take a look at a long sentence. <laughs> Ephesians chapter 1. This is where we'll be diving into next week. This is where my head's at right now. But um, you were talking about, uh, Don, you were talking about Reformed theology. Um, we did a series here a couple of years ago on election predestination, and Ephesians 1 is right up there with Romans 9 on its, its emphasis on this. Um, and so I just want to make a couple observations in preparation for diving in. Every, every biblically faithful Christian, every remotely biblically faithful church, every biblical theology has a doctrine of predestination and election because they're biblical terms. There can be discussion as to what is meant by election and predestination. But unlike, say, a word like Trinity, which is not found in the Bible, it's taught in the Bible, but it's not found. Here's actually a word that is clearly used in Scripture. And Paul is going to use it to great effect in this one long sentence of 3 to 14. What makes the sentence challenging is, as I'm trying to translate through it, 
is what each of the pronouns references. I'll give you one example. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who blessed us in every spiritual blessing in heavenly places, even as he chose us in him. Now, I think that's a pretty clear one. But is it, I think it is, he chose us, the Father chose us in him. The Father chose us in himself, or the Father chose us in the Son. I think it's the Father chose us in Christ. I think that fits. But if you keep trying to track through all those he and his's, and there's a lot of them, it gets trickier and trickier and trickier to figure out exactly what Paul is saying. And that same ambiguity in English where if I said I spoke to Zeb and I spoke to Simeon and he said, and you're like, well, which one of them said it? That same ambiguity is equally present here in Greek. So let me just read through those, those, that sentence and you'll see what I mean. Just try it as we read through. How many, some, I'm not saying every one of them is tough, but there are some tough ones as trying to figure out which member of the Trinity is Paul speaking of. And also, I'm going to emphasize, I'm going to put the emphasis on the syllable, how passive we are in this and how much things are being done for us and, and the him and his. You'll see it. This is a God-centered overview of salvation. We get the blessing. He gets the glory. He does the work. We receive salvation. So one sentence in Greek. <laughs> Ephesians 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him... We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him, we've obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory." You see how much is packed into that? Every member of the Trinity is, is involved in this. Um, and we'll probably take three weeks to get through that, that sentence. There's just so much going on there. Um, but Paul's starting point is going to be this activity of the sovereign God in predestinating and electing a people and lavishing grace and mercy and good things upon them. That's going to be his starting point. And uh, it just, it's like, you, hi, I'm Paul, grace and peace to you. And then we're just jumping into election, predestination, and before time. And yeah, this is, this is a rich book. I, I didn't have time on the outline this morning. I was thinking about it, and then I thought about doing two weeks of intro, and I thought that would really be trying your guys' patience. But we could consider what are some major themes in Ephesians? And I was talking to Jacob Moore about this earlier. 
I would say probably Ephesians' most unique contribution to uh, the New Testament or to Scripture is its, its teaching on the church. In other words, as rich as this is on election predestination, there's also Romans 9. There's nothing unique here about that. But in chapter 3, where Paul talks about the unfolding mystery of the church, of the Jew and the Gentile being one, and the dividing wall being taken down, I would say that Ephesians, I think, is the clearest and most extensive on that topic. So one of the things we're going to see is who are we as the church, and what does that mean, and and how are we made one in Christ? That's going to be one of the most unique features of Ephesians that no other book, I think, comes close to going in as detail about. So I, I'm looking forward to learning about who we are and what it means that Christ has made us his body, the church. Okay, ten minutes, seven minutes. Any other questions? Awfully quiet. No, no. Oh, where's the mic? I've got one. Oh. Well, it's more of a statement. Okay. Because we had the reading of the whole book yeah. um, this morning, it just kind of reminded me of um, I think Ezra reading the book and Nehemiah, and how that went. Mm. Didn't they? They did like what? all the books of Moses in a morning or at something? Least the, at least Deuteronomy. So like when they refer to the law, at least, that would mean at least Deuteronomy, quite possibly the entire Pentateuch. Minimum. The least it can mean is Deuteronomy. And it may well be Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And then the Levites came in to give the people the sense of the meaning. Okay. It says the book of the law. So. Well, that's what I mean. The book of the law. But see, we have different books so, like, right. if, if Book of the Law means the Torah, it would be all five. Mm. Or since Deuteronomy means Deuteronomos, a second law, it could be a reference to just Deuteronomy. We're not sure. We're not certain mm -hmm. about what the reference of the Book of the Law is. It's either or. It's at least 32 chapters of Deuteronomy, quite possibly over 100 chapters of the Pentateuch. So... If I read six chapters, we did not merely scratch the surface of how long um, it could have gone. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, any, any, oh, Zach. For uh, reading like the whole book through, it made me think of, um, have you heard of the ESV Reader's Bible? Or yeah. I don't know if they're in other translations too, but I heard about it on Desiring God, how it's a Bible that doesn't have all the chapter and verse <laughs> markings in it, so you could try and read it basically like it was originally written. I came this close to bringing my copy in here this morning. It's on my <laughs> I was desk. wondering, yeah, so do you have oh, one? Fantastic. Yeah, yeah. Do you have thoughts on it? Oh, I think it's great. I think it's great. They basically published, my only complaint is you ever read poetry? And they'll have on the outside margin, they'll have like 5, 10, 50. They, they mark the number of lines. I don't know why they didn't include that. Because then you'd be like page 6, line 12. And you, but basically, it's, it's a copy of Ephesians. And the, I have, they didn't like five volumes. I have one that's the letters of Paul. And it's simply with nice wide margins and a nice readable font, the letter with no verse markings, no some manuscripts say, no cross-references. It's... In English, about as close as we can get to what the letter would have looked like if it was delivered to us by Tychicus himself. 
And it's pretty cool to read that way because all that framework, which certainly can be helpful, it's helpful when I say, look at verse 12, look what's said here, but it can also distract you from the fact this is a letter. And Paul did not start chapter 1, verse 1, I, Paul. It starts, I, Paul, you know, Paul an apostle. And so it is helpful to, to read it that way. And I would really strongly commend to you all um, reading and rereading the same passage. I think our Bible reading needs to be broad and deep. I think reading through the Bible in the year is fantastic. There are Bible reading programs to do that. If you don't do that, there'll be portions of the Bible you just never read. Who, who on their own is going to say, I'm going to go read the eight chapters of genealogies in First Chronicles today? No, Unless you're doing a Bible reading program, I don't think anyone is going to intentionally read that that genealogy, or very few people are. So a Bible reading plan is going to get you in there. It's going to get you in the Minor Prophets. It's going to get you through Leviticus, which may not apparently seem to have much use. It does, but it may not seem to initially, right? But reading and rereading does something else. Serena and I were, uh, how many years ago did we do Philippians? Philippians can be read in about, Philippians can be read in about eight minutes, and we for a month, read Philippians at every meal, three times a day. Breakfast, lunch, dinner. I think it took seven minutes. You could do it. Um, and I'll tell you, you start getting familiar with it, and you start getting familiar. So you're re- it's what happens then is you're reading a section, and you're remembering what was said a chapter before, and you're remembering what's coming up, and all of a sudden you start seeing connections that are there. See, these connections, they're not magic from going to seminary. They're not magic from knowing Greek. It's just grasping, oh, oh, just like, I, I mean, I've read Ephesians a number of times, but it wasn't until I started reading and rereading it that I saw Paul sets up that walk. I knew about the walk. Someone in, at seminary pointed out Paul divides the chapter four and five into walk this way, walk this way, you know, um, and I strongly avoided doing an Aerosmith impression. Um, Good job. You're welcome. Uh, but I had not seen how he set it up in chapter two. You used to walk this way, but God saved you and he prepared good works for you to walk in until like last week. And I'm like, oh, and you see those things. Those are the types of things anyone can see. There's no special training to see that. There's no like class to see. It's just the seeing that comes from familiarity with the text and reading it. Just like you rewatch your favorite movie or you listen to your favorite album over and over and you notice things you didn't notice before. That only happens when you read and reread. So I, I think it would be fantastic. I, I think it would be great if some of us, all of us, would try to read Ephesians once a week. If you, if you could pull that off for you know, eight or nine months, you are going to know Ephesians inside and out. Um, and, and that ultimately is the goal. I'll, I'll end with this. When I, Don, you can end. Get Don a mic. Let me finish what I'm saying. When I, when I teach, I have two goals in mind. One, that you might have some encouragement, some truth, use the, the feeding metaphor that Jesus gives to Peter, feed my sheep, that you have something to eat today. But part of why, um, why this church has been committed to expository preaching is the, the desire to train people how to read the Bibles themselves. I'll use the expression, I, I have to show my math. I can't just say the answer to the problem is 42. I gotta show the math of how you get there. I gotta justify the argumentation. And part of that is to do two things, to hold me accountable so that you don't think I'm some pope with a magic bat phone and I just figure out what the passage means because, you know, no, but I've talked to people who almost think like it's magic. They wouldn't say it's magic, but, you know, like just, I don't know how you do it, 
No, there's, it's, I'm, I'm leaning on other people, but it's, there's rationale behind it. And we can, we can reason why the Bible means this and not that. But the second, not, just, not only to, to keep me honest, so that I don't just start saying strange and weird things, but that you might also learn how to read your Bible and, and follow in suit. My goal ultimately would be that at the end of this series, you can read Ephesians better. Like right now, I would love, I would hope and love that you are reading Luke more richly now than you were before. That you could open up and read Luke and get more out of it and see more things in Luke because we've walked through it slowly. So that the, the goal is ultimately your better reading of the Bible, um, not just to hear an encouraging uh, or convicting word on a given Sunday morning, but a growing pattern of becoming a better and better reader of God's word. An, under, an interpreter of God's word. Don, bring us home, and we'll call it a day. Well, I was thinking the one contrast between watching a movie over and over again, you start seeing all the mistakes and continuity and everything, but it seems like the more you read the Bible, mm. you see all the connections and how yeah. much truth is in it. Yeah, absolutely. I The more I read my Bible over and over, the more amazed I am at the, the obviousness to me of there's one mind behind this. When you see the similarity of themes, the interconnection of, of authors over hundreds or even thousands of years, I just continually marvel at how there's no other, one mind is behind this. There's, there's no way, but absolutely. Okay, thank you very much. God bless you. Have a good afternoon, and uh, thank you.